children back into our children's ministry area, you're more than welcome to take them back there now. We run that through first grade. And for those of you whose children are staying in the service with us, they are welcome too. We have been working through chapter 10 of our confession of effectual calling. And this morning we arrive at paragraph three, and I'm going to read paragraph three and then um, I send out an email weekly to our members uh, just to try to help them know what's coming uh, on Sunday uh, so they're not blindsided by anything I say up here. And um, <clears throat> just kidding. But, the, uh, but paragraph three, I sent them a little extra commentary that I'm, I'm going to read you uh, this morning um, because I think that there's so much hope in this passage and we see just how um, uh, doctrine theology should be applied. And, um, and so paragraph three talks about infants dying in infancy. And it says this in our confession, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. The same is true of every elect person who's incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of of the word. And then the passage of scripture that undergirds this is John chapter 3 and verse verse 3 and then verses 5 and 6 and then verse 8. And let me read that to you as well. It says Jesus answered and said to him, "Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." Jesus answered, "Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God." That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so I'm just going to read you the commentary I gave to the members earlier this week. It says this, First, it's important for us to know that at the time that this confession was written, a third of all babies died in infancy. So this was a pastoral concern. What measure of comfort can a pastor give to a grieving mother and father? I've been in pastoral ministry for many years now, and I've sat with many families grieving the loss of a sweet baby because of stillbirths or miscarriages or SIDS or just freak accidents. Now, I'm grateful to God for how specific our confession is. I'm thankful for the pastoral consideration given in the drafting of a paragraph like this. This is theology applied, which is the only type of theology that matters. The pastors who drafted this sought to highlight the Scripture's teaching that it's God alone who saves. Our salvation is not contingent on us in any way. We do not save ourselves. We do not choose God. He chooses us. Now, why would an infant need to be saved? Well, while infants have not committed personal transgressions, they are born in sin. They are stained by the sin of Adam. They are born with a sinful nature. This is why it's significant that Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus was not tainted by the sin of Adam. Jesus was not born with a sinful nature. But every other person since the fall of Adam was born with a sinful nature. In other words, we are all born as sinners. We are not born as saints. King David confessed, in sin did my mother conceive me, Psalm 51 5. So even our infants need to be redeemed. There's no infant in heaven 
based on that infant being innocent. We all lost our innocence in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, infants must enter the kingdom of heaven by the grace of God alone. They must enter into heaven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. This means that the shed blood of Jesus must be applied to the child by the Spirit. And this is the precise point that the confession makes. Elect infants that die in infancy are redeemed by Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So how would I use this to comfort a grieving mother or father who asked me whether I thought their infant was in heaven? I would tell them that they have every reason to believe, based on the goodness and mercy of God, that their infant is present with the Lord. God can save us no matter how small or underdeveloped we are. And this connects us to another point that the framers of the confession made in this paragraph. The last section says, so also are all elect persons saved who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Who's in view here when the framers wrote incapable? What they mean is those who are mentally disabled from grasping the gospel message. For those of us who have friends, families, uh, family members and relatives, uh, or uh, friends and relatives who are unable to comprehend clear calls for repentance and faith, even they can be saved because, again, the Lord alone is the one who does the saving. They can be saved by grace. They can be saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The reason why this paragraph is in the chapter on effectual calling is to demonstrate that God alone does all the saving. He is the author of our faith. He is the finisher of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. No matter our size, no matter the length of our life, no matter our mental capabilities. And so I pray this is a comfort to you and encourages you as it relates to God's nature and his disposition toward us. It's good that our salvation rests in God alone. If even 1% of our salvation were up to us, we'd have no hope of gaining nor maintaining our salvation. So that is paragraph three of chapter 10. And it's good that God controls our salvation. Amen. Mark chapter 11, turn with me there. Mark chapter 11, I'm going to read to us verses 1 through 11. Mark 11, 1 through 11. And we are uh, at the point that uh, Mark, under inspiration of the Spirit, has been building toward, he's been working toward, which is the triumphal entry of Jesus going into Jerusalem, okay? And so I'm going to read it, I'm going to pray, and then I will begin to work through this passage with us. And if you've noticed already, and you'll see, you know, it'll become clear as we work through our text, I, I called this both a revealing and a mystery, that the, triumph, the triumphal entry of Jesus is both a revealing and a mystery, and we will see why as we work through this together. But John Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he penned these words. He says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples And he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. 
But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 11, Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around... At all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. Thank you for preserving it. God, thank you that we can grow in Christ as a result of spending time in it, God. That it's not just a book, but it's a book that you wrote, a book that you inspired, God. And, uh, And because you live... God, this book can shape our hearts, can shape our thinking. So help us as we seek to use this means you've given us, Lord, as a way to know you better. And I pray this in Jesus' Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As I said this morning, all right, we're we're we have Jesus entering into Jerusalem, what our narrative has been working toward. What you know, the, these first 11 uh, chapters, or these first 10 chapters, rather, have been moving us toward the place where Jesus would suffer many things, and then he would die, and then he would resurrect. But what we have here is Mark beginning to give us a compressed version uh, of just the, the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry, okay, his, his first Advent ministry. So as we journey through chapters 11 to 16, we're going to see things escalate rather rapidly. And really, the, the triumphal entry here in chapter 11, it's a good stopping place uh, for us for now. We're going to spend, uh, Lord willing, two weeks here. Then I'm going to preach a, a standalone sermon on Psalm 1, uh, the weekend of, of Thanksgiving. And then I'm going to do a, a Christmas series on Jesus as creator and as prophet and priest and, and king. So us spending a couple of weeks considering the significance of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, it'll be a good way to close out our study on Mark for 2023. Uh, and this morning, we're going to uh, especially consider the first six verses of Mark chapter 11. And, and, and like I said a moment ago, we're going to consider how the triumphal entry of Jesus was both uh, a revealing and a mystery. Now, this particular uh, section in Scripture is familiar to many of us, right? We usually hear about this passage of Scripture the week before what? Easter, right? Uh, the, the Sunday before Easter, which is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. And the part of the passage that's most familiar to us, it includes the, the palm tree branches, right? Or the, the leafy branches, as our text says in verse 8, and, and how these were laid on the ground that Jesus came in on riding a donkey. And we know we're familiar with the song, uh, if you will, that was saying when Christ came into Jerusalem, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
But there's a lot that's lost on us in this passage. In other words, this is a, this is a rich passage of Scripture, and it's full of a lot of Old, Testi- Old Testament imagery and Old Testament fulfillment. And I want us to see that this morning. So we're going to kind of take our time working through that. And it's one of the reasons why we're going to spend two weeks here. We're going to work through some of the Old Testament background and imagery, and, and Lord willing, be deeply encouraged by it. I, I, I want our faith to be more solidified in Christ because of the time that we take this morning and next week considering some of this Old Test- Testament background because I've personally, as I've studied it um, this week, I've been encouraged by it. And there was so much here, there is so much here, that when Jesus came in on the donkey into Jerusalem, uh, even the disciples did not see Uh, everything that was going on. Uh, For instance, John confesses this in his account. In John chapter 12, verse 16, he says this as it relates to the mindset of the disciples in light of the triumphal entry of Jesus. He says, his disciples, okay, Jesus' disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. They, They remembered that what happened at the triumphal entry that it was written? It was written that he would do that, right? Where? The Old Testament, right? In the scriptures. And then that they realized what they had done to him. So, so the disciples of Jesus understood the richness of the triumphal entry only after Jesus was glorified. And kids, when I use that word glorified, I mean after Jesus bodily resurrected from the dead and he appeared to a lot of people after he bodily resurrected from the dead and then he ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. When we use that word glorified as it relates to Jesus, that's what we mean. But these things didn't become clear until after Jesus was glorified. So they didn't even see how they were participating. The disciples didn't see how they were participating in God's plan of redemption, in God's story of redemption, even as they were obeying Jesus in the moment. They didn't have the full picture. They didn't understand how all the pieces fit together, but it became clearer to them after the resurrection and after the ascension of Jesus. And, and I imagine that this understanding, you know, when things began to, to click for them, if you will, that it must have, uh, have deepened their gratitude to God and their devotion to God. And, and we're blessed, you and I are, as, as, as Christians living today. Right? Not only do we live on the other side of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, meaning that much of our Christian life is spent looking backwards at what the triune God has accomplished, right? but we have the completed canon of Scripture, and we can search it, and as a result, we can be driven into deeper devotion to the Lord, a deeper love for God, a deeper love for one another. So I want to take advantage of that this morning and go deeper into this text together. And so keep your Bibles open with me as we work through this text and as we go through and look at this text in through the lens of the Old Testament, or rather we look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament here, the triumphal entry of Jesus. 
Mark 11, it it opens up with Jesus and his disciples coming near uh, to the city of Jerusalem. And they are specifically at Bethany, uh, at the Mount of Olives. And we know this because of the geography of the time. Bethany is further out from Jerusalem than Bethphage is. And and so Jesus, he, he sends two of his disciples, and we don't know which two from Mark's account here, um, but he sends them into Bethphage and they're to get a, a colt, they're to get a, a donkey from there that had never been sat on, right? And they're to get this donkey and they're to bring the donkey back to Jesus, okay? So they're to go ahead of him, get the donkey, and then they're to come back to Jesus so that Jesus can ride on this donkey into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus says to the two that he sent in verse 3 that if anybody asks why they're taking a donkey, uh, they're, they're to reply that the Lord has need of it. That's, that's to be their response to someone who questions them untying a donkey. And Jesus says that upon saying that, upon giving that reason, um, that the individual that they say it to or the people that they say it to will receive like receive that as a legitimate answer and allow for the donkey to be taken now I want to hang out here for a few minutes because this is where we first begin to see the triumphal entry as both a revealing and a mystery so first let's contemplate together the mystery aspect okay mark's account <clears throat> doesn't mention the Old Testament imagery behind the instructions of Jesus regarding the donkey. But the Old Testament imagery, it's here, right? And it's the Old Testament aspect of Jesus' triumph, triumphal entry that, again, that, that, that clicked for the disciples after the glorification of Jesus. And we need to turn to the Old Testament to see better the significance of these instructions. And Jesus is actually riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem. Now, I want to have you turn to two places in the Old Testament. First, turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. I want to look specifically at verses 10 and 11. And this is a passage that we'll come back to a little bit later. We'll even come back to this passage next week, too, as we look at these first 11 verses again. Let me just read it. Okay, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of context, you know, so you kind of know where we are in Genesis. Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 to 11, says this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Again, Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 to 11. So a little bit of context here. This passage is Jacob's last, last words to his sons, okay? And he gathers them up, and he tells them what's going to befall them. And so we see that the very first verse in chapter 49 there. And by verse 8, he arrives at addressing Judah, Okay, and he tells him in a very poetic way that he will be the one uh, 
um, who, whose brothers, he, that his brothers will praise him. He'll be the one that his brothers praise, which reminds us of who? Does that, does that make, make you think of anyone? Makes me think of Joseph, right? And, um, but he says that Judah will be a conqueror and a ruler and that he will overcome his enemies. And then in verse 10, he says that the scepter, which is uh, this symbol, it's a staff that, that represents a royal authority, that the scepter will not depart from Judah until, quote, Shiloh comes. Now that word or name, Shiloh, it's an untranslated form of the Hebrew expression, which means to whom it belongs. Now that's the part that I, I want to revisit more next week. But just note that this mysterious Shiloh is significant. Okay, This mysterious Shiloh is greater than Judah. He is more powerful then Judah, and to this, uh, to the Shiloh shall be the obedience. Again, if we're looking at Genesis here, that passage, but to this Shiloh shall be the obedience of the people. And that word that's translated by the NKJV, which is the translation I was reading from, the, the word translated as people could be better translated as nations. Okay, so the rule of Shiloh will extend further than the rule of Judah. Okay, it is going to go beyond the boundaries of Israel. Shiloh will take the scepter and he's going to rule over all the nations. And then this prophecy in Genesis, it gets really specific. It says this in verse 11, binding his donkey to the vine... He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. So there's a donkey, right? One that's tied up. And then there's this imagery of garments and wine and clothes and, 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 and we see blood of, of grapes here. And we'll revisit that as well in, in just a, a few moments. But hold that thought and then turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Chapter 9 of Zechariah, it opens up with what's considered by many scholars to be part 2 of Zechariah's prophecy. And, and part 2, according to those same scholars, it centers around the judgment and blessing that accompany the appearance of the messianic king. And in verse 9 of chapter 9, we see this command. And it really is a command if you're, you know, you're looking at it. But it's a command to rejoice. It's a command to sing. It's a command to behold the just king who provides salvation. And this king who's so powerful, this king whose appearance warrants the people to rejoice and sing, rides not on a horse like those earthly kings of conquest, 
right? This king doesn't ride in like Alexander the Great would ride in. In other words, the way that this conquering king rides is different than how you and I would picture it, right? He rides on a donkey, which is kind of a silly image, isn't it? At least it is to me. Never seen anyone really gracefully ride a donkey. <clears throat> but this king, he comes in a lowly way, according to Zechariah, right? He comes riding the beast of burden. Right? And, and the prophecy of Zechariah, if we were to read on, and I would encourage you to do so, but if we were to read on, it says that this coming and just king, he speaks peace to the nations. And it says that his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 10. All right, so we have this king who shall have dominion, but when we picture him in our mind's eye, it isn't how we think that he would come to conquer his enemies. Now, this is the mystery. Right? This is what Mark alludes to, or rather, the Holy Spirit is alluding to through Mark. This is what's alluded to without outright saying it. Right? This is some of the rich Old Testament background in fulfillment. Now come back to Mark with me because I, I want to begin to harmonize these texts, although I pray you're beginning to see the connections. Right? Jesus sends two disciples to fetch a donkey. Right? And it's important that the donkey is tied up. Why? Because according to the Genesis prophecy, the donkey of Shiloh was tied to a vine. Right? Furthermore, the donkey had to have never been ridden. Now, this would be strange in the Jewish mind because a donkey would need breaking in. Right? The beast of burden would need to be trained in carrying weight effectively. But Jesus said that this donkey was to be one that had never been ridden. Why? Well... Because only the Messiah would ride this donkey. Right? In Jewish culture, no one would ride the Messiah's donkey in the same way that no one would ride a king's horse. Now, this is where the revealing part comes in. I mentioned earlier, we see it in Jesus' very words. Look back with me, Mark 11, verse 3, and then we'll drop down to verses 5 and 6. Verse 3 says this, If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. And then verses 5 and 6 say, But some of those who stood there, and we, we see, did the, you know, did the disciples follow the instructions of Jesus? The answer is yes, right? Some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. All right, so... So first, as it relates to, to the revealing aspect of all of this, Jesus uses the title Lord, and he uses it for himself, right? The Lord. Tell them this, the Lord has need of it. And when Jesus uses that word Lord, he's saying, he's, he, he's putting it this way. He says, if somebody asks you why you need this donkey you tell them that the supreme ruler, right, the king of his people, the king of the Jews, the one that you've been waiting for, requires this donkey. And the message is received. 
Let me see the last part of verse 6. So they let them go. It's important that it happened this way. And in God's providence, the disciples Jesus sent, they were careful to obey the instructions of Jesus, even if they weren't fully cognizant of what it was that they were even doing. Now, there's more for us to see that that we'll have to wait until next week. But here's the key takeaway, just from examining these first six verses in light of their Old Testament context. And kids, if you're taking notes, again, you can look on with your parents' worship guide and you can write down this note. It's this. We, all of us, we need spiritual sight to see the conquering nature of the gospel in our sin-infested world. We need spiritual sight to see the conquering nature of the gospel in our sin-infested world. I said this last week, but I don't think that it's a coincidence that Jesus gave sight to a blind man before he came into Jerusalem, especially considering that he came into Jerusalem in this way, right, riding a donkey. We need spiritual sight in order to see why it is that Jesus came in on a donkey, right? It seems like such an insignificant way for the Messiah to come into this great city, right? This, This hub for the religious life of the Jewish people. Yet the Holy Spirit of God is is constantly reminding us, reminding you and me through His Word, by His Spirit, that strength and power and conquering in the kingdom of God is so much different than what comes to our minds when we think about those words, kingdom of God and conquering and strength and and power. A victorious and powerful king that maybe would have come to mind in Jesus' day, and I mentioned him already, may have been someone like Alexander the Great, right? Who was active in the 300s BC. Yet Christ's kingdom does not function that way. And he said this plainly when he stood before Pilate. John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus said this to Pilate. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. There there are those who have interpreted this passage as saying that Jesus' kingdom is in heaven and that this world belongs to the devil. And as a result... This interpret, uh, of this particular interpretation, there are those that conclude that all we should expect this side of eternity is just downward movement as it relates to the kingdom of God advancing. But that's not what Jesus is saying in this passage of Scripture at all. Right? We've noted this time and time again in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, but it bears repeating. Right? Jesus came into this world and he brought his kingdom with him. He came into this world and he brought his kingdom with him. Or he inaugurated his kingdom through his coming. Right? His coming was at the same time that inauguration right, of the kingdom in which he told us to pray would come on earth as it what? As it is in heaven. Right? What Jesus said to Pilate in the John passage is the very same thing that we see him doing in his riding on a donkey to Jerusalem to face his death. Jesus' kingdom does not function like kingdoms of this world. And Jesus teases that out. If his kingdom functioned like kingdoms of this world, his disciples would have been violent. 
They would have been violent. They would have physically forced the advancement of the kingdom of God. But Jesus doesn't subdue his enemies through violence, right? He subdues his enemies by conquering their hearts through his life and death and resurrection and by his spirit applying his life and death and resurrection to the heart of man. His kingdom is not of this world. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. And he, our savior and our king and our conqueror is not like those conquerors in the world. And praise God for that, right? He's different. He's other, which means that he's holy. He's holy. So make no mistake, Jesus died and he resurrected in this world. So this world will be redeemed. Satan doesn't own it. This world doesn't belong to the snake, to the serpent. It belongs to the snake crusher. It belongs to the snake crusher. It belongs to the one whose garments, going back to Jesus, right, whose clothes were washed in wine. It belongs to the one who gave his life for it and then resurrected for it. Our king who rode into Jerusalem on the beast of burden is the one who bore our burden of sin. So we see Jesus on a donkey. Right? This fulfillment of this messianic promise that we see in the Old Testament. And if we look with eyes of faith, if we look with spiritual sight, we see that it's this king on a donkey who forever holds the scepter. We see that it's this king on this donkey whom the nations will obey. We see that it's this king on this donkey that's just. It's this king on this donkey whose dominion is from sea to sea. And as I said, it's this king on this donkey whose garments, whose clothes were washed in wine. Right? The blood of Christ shed for us so that you and I could be free, so that the curse might begin to be eradicated. We're coming into a season where Christmas music abounds. I love this time of year. I'm the one that is ready to begin decorating for Christmas on November the 1st. Some of you are like, I knew that, I know, I knew I didn't like him and that I know now why. But there's a, a song that we sing at Deer Park every Christmas Uh, Joy to the World. And Isaac Watts, he wrote this Christmas hymn uh, based on Psalm 98. And Psalm 98 says this, O sing to the, again a command here, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he's revealed in the sight of of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. My favorite line in joy to the world 
is he comes to make his blessings flow for what? As the curse is found. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Watts wrote this song to actually celebrate the second coming of Jesus, but I think it's appropriate that it has become a song that we sing at Christmas as we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. And the reason why is this. The work that Christ began at his first advent, he will finish at his second advent. Right? The work that Christ began at his first advent, he really will finish it at his second advent. Our humble Lord is the conquering king, and he conquered through the shedding of his blood. And the evidence of his victory is his resurrection and his ascension, right? his glorification. And now the nations are being subdued. And, and I know that things often look so dark, Right? When we look up and pay attention to the things around us, I know that it's hard to see, but it's happening. It's happening. The disciples didn't see how Jesus' humble, otherworldly approach to his messianic mission was going to accomplish salvation, but it did. It did. And we, you and me, like the disciples, we wrestle with believing that an event that happened 2,000 years ago is having a leavening effect on the nations, but it is. It is. Christ conquered, and the news of his conquering and the efficacy of his conquering is spreading. Quote, to him shall be the obedience of the nations, Genesis 49:10. Quote, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus died for the nations, and his dominion is from sea to sea. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to spend some time in your word this morning, and we ask, Lord, that you would increase our faith Increase our ability to have spiritual sight despite what we see often going on around us. Help us to rest and have confidence in our conquering king who rode on a donkey. And we love you and we give you all praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.